This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. Listener discretion is advised. A religious cult believes they've been called to elevate to the kingdom of heaven, which leads to their mass suicide in 1997. This is Method and Madness episode 29, Heaven's Gate, Pre-Flight. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hikers stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call. The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method. And madness. We're taking a dive into the religious cult of Heaven's Gate. What were their beliefs? How did they live on a day-to-day basis? And why were seemingly normal people ditching their lives, their identities, to join? What events took place to lead to a mass suicide in 1997? On today's episode, we'll look into the religious group, how it was formed, who were its leaders, and how their teachings inspired others to join as members. And what event transpired in the 80s that caused the group to take a slight detour and head to a new, revised belief? And finally, how were they planning to leave this planet to get to the next level? This is going to be a multi-park miniseries. There's a lot to unpack here. It's important, I think, to mention at the top that With the story of Heaven's Gate, there are facts and there are beliefs. The facts being the timeline, the events that transpired over decades leading to the deaths of 39 people. The beliefs are from members, what they call truths, and come from those that died in the mass suicide as well as surviving members and former members. There's also a lot of sensationalism around the story, and it's easy to see why. It's interesting. It's not the kind of event that you see on the news every day, and lots of people in general are drawn to the psychology of a cult. How do cult members, the like-minded, find each other? How do they stray so far from what we consider the norm? How do the beliefs bring them to a conclusion that is often, in the media, an event of multiple deaths? I'm not into sensationalism, just the truth, and we'll strive for accuracy and fairness— For this isn't a case that needs exaggeration. There's enough truth here for a captivating and often heartbreaking story. Let's dive in. Hello? Yes, um, I need to uh, report uh, an anonymous tip. Who do I talk to? Uh, Okay, this is regarding what? This is regarding a mass suicide, and I can give you the address. That was the 911 call, made in 1997. But let's go back to May 17, 1931, with the birth of Marshall Herf Applewhite in Spur, Texas. 
He was the leader of Heaven's Gate, that guy with the intense eyes in those videos talking about his purpose. Born to parents Marshall and Louise, Applewhite was a minister's son. He grew up in several different towns throughout South Texas and had two sisters and a brother. Life was fairly normal for the very religious family, and Marshall Applewhite loved music and singing. He was described in his youth as a likable guy, energetic, smart, and popular. He graduated from Austin College in 1952, where he'd majored in philosophy with hopes of one day becoming a minister like his father. He then enrolled at Union Theological Seminary of Virginia in Richmond, but it was music that turned out to be his passion. He dropped out and started a job as director of music at a Presbyterian church in North Carolina. People who worked with him attended his church all said what a wonderful singing voice Applewhite had. In the early 50s, Marshall Applewhite married Ann Pierce, and the pair traveled extensively. Applewhite was drafted and spent time in Austria and New Mexico before an honorable discharge in 1956. He and his wife had two children, a boy and a girl, and they lived in Boulder, Houston, and New York City, all while Marshall took on different jobs in music. They were friendly with other couples, would host dinners, and by all accounts, of those who knew Marshall Applewhite at this time, he was fun, engaging. In 1965, Applewhite allegedly engaged in a sexual relationship with a male student while teaching at the University of Alabama and was subsequently fired, though the reason given by the university was, quote, health problems of an emotional nature. Applewhite and his wife divorced in 1968. Some sources say it was due to the affair. In 1970, while teaching music at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, it was speculated that Applewhite may have had an affair with another male student as well as female students. He resigned, and his mental health seemed to be declining, possibly due to the death of his father, maybe due to his frustration or guilt over his sexuality, maybe all of the above. During his time teaching, his students spoke highly of him. They didn't have any indication of what was to come. In 1972, Applewhite checked himself into a psychiatric hospital. According to an article in the Washington Post, it was to, quote, cure himself of his homosexual desires. Other sources say it was due to depression. Applewhite himself has said that he wasn't hospitalized. He was just there to visit a friend. While hospitalized, Applewhite met the woman who would change his life for better or for worse. Registered nurse Bonnie Nettles formed a bond with Applewhite. Now, she loved being a nurse, had a knack for working with babies, but her hobbies and her interests included astrology, seances, and UFOs. Nettles, also from Texas, had been married to Joseph Siegel Nettles in 1949. The couple had four children together and then divorced in the early 70s. While she and Applewhite were never romantically involved, in fact, they renounced all sexuality, their relationship, their friendship, and connection were instantaneous, and it evolved to where they believed they were spiritual partners and that, on some level, they'd already met. What I'm about to tell you is what these two had conjured up during those early years in the 70s, what Heaven's Gate was all about. This will help to understand their terminology, 
their reasonings, as bizarre as it will all seem on a logical level. Their beliefs were in astrology, channeling, reincarnation, and Christian mysticism. It appeared that Nettles brought the topic of spiritualism to the table while Applewhite brought Christianity. Most notably, though, was the belief that they were martyrs, two representatives from the next level, also known as the evolutionary level above human, also known as the kingdom of heaven. So, if they were two representatives from the next level, what were they doing in Texas? Well, in the early 70s, they came down from the kingdom of heaven as two souls and took over the bodies of a woman and a man in their 40s. Except to Applewhite and Nettles, these aren't bodies but vehicles. Like a suit of armor they put on while here at Earth level to carry out their task. The bodies, vehicles that they took over, were apparently tagged for them by crews from the next level that had been here on Earth previously. Sort of like, hey, we're going to set this aside for you. Come pick it up the next time you're in town. Here's an excerpt right from their website. Yeah, the Heaven's Gate website, heavensgate.com, it still exists. In its very 90-ish glory. Here's what it says about vehicles. Not only is the body, in a sense, the temporary container for the soul, but even more importantly, the soul is the housing or container of the new creature. The soul has its own brain or hard drive, that accumulates only information of the next level, mundane as well as theoretical or philosophical. The soul also becomes part of the new physical body of the new creature, though it is seldom seen by human eyes. Therefore, when a soul is a part of a new deposit, it has very little information and is as a very small next level fetus. So, now that they were in their assigned vehicles and they were here on Earth posing as humans, the next task was to lead others to the next level, the kingdom of God. The others that they were to lead were students they'd worked with previously on other earthly missions. In the simplest of terms, they believed that a spaceship would one day take them all away, back to the next level, the kingdom of heaven. Basically, their vehicles' bodies would transform into an alien. Chemically and biologically, that vehicle would transform a next-level alien. Then each member would physically get on board the UFO, which would fly off into heaven. This is where their beliefs met at an intersection between Christianity and outer space. They were interested in sci-fi, particularly Star Wars and Star Trek, and according to Rolling Stone, believed that the Virgin Mary was taken aboard a spacecraft where she was impregnated with baby Jesus. It was the book of Revelations that says the next level is accessible by a cloud. Nettles and Applewhite said it was a UFO that would get them there. After all, it was the end of times and they needed to get back to their kingdom. That intersection between Christianity and outer space would be prominent in their discussions, their information sessions, their videos, that with a strong enough telescope, you could see God. They referred to themselves as the two, witnesses from the book of Revelations. They also went by the names Bo and Peep, and later, T and Doe. For two members of the kingdom of heaven, or from the next level, 
they didn't seem certain about how their students had gotten back here at Earth level. Their website states that they suspect the others had arrived here on Earth in staged UFO crashes and that the bodies were taken by the government. So now that you've had a high-level view of what Applewhite and Nettles were doing and what they were teaching, let's get back to the facts. It's possible Marshall Applewhite met his spiritual partner at a time in life when he was seeking guidance, maybe even a sign. He was divorced, he wasn't seeing his children as much, and his religion wasn't supporting him if he were to live openly as a homosexual. And together, he and Bonnie Nettles served a purpose. There was a reason. And these two had an explanation for everything. So if anyone could point to them and say, well, if you're representatives from the kingdom of heaven from the next level, then why were you born in Texas in the 1930s? If you're spirits or souls, then why do you bleed? That's how they were to explain the vehicles. We bleed because we're disguised as humans and humans bleed, etc., etc. Oh, and those vehicles, the ones that turn into aliens, well, you took them with you to the next level. Meaning, it wasn't your spirit that left the vehicle and got on the UFO. It was the whole vehicle. That's important to remember as we get further into the episode, so we'll put a pin in that for now. And so began their mission, to find their previous students, who Nettles and Applewhite, who were already perfected aliens, could help transition. In 1972, they opened a metaphysical bookstore, but they closed its doors by the following January. From 1973 to 74, the two traveled around the United States, staying at campsites and motels, all while dedicating themselves to their mission— Reportedly, Nettles no longer had contact with three of her four children, and Applewhite had nearly no contact with his two children. In August of 74, the two were arrested in Texas, Nettles for credit card fraud and Applewhite for stealing a rental car. Not that he walked onto a lot and hot-wired a car, but more, he failed to return a rental car. The charges against Nettle were later dropped, and Applewhite tried to use the old defense of, quote, a force from beyond the earth has made me keep this car. He ended up serving six months in jail for his offense. In 1975, while in Waldport, Oregon, Applewhite and Nettles, Bo and Peep, posted some flyers around town. They read, Not a discussion of UFO sightings or phenomena. Two individuals say they were sent from the level above human and are about to leave the human level and literally, physically, return to that next evolutionary level in a spacecraft, UFO, within months. The two will discuss how the transition from the human level to the next level is accomplished and when this may be done. This is not a religious or philosophical organization recruiting membership. However, the information has already prompted many individuals to devote their total energy to the transitional process, if you have ever entertained the idea that there may be a real, physical level beyond the Earth's confines, you will want to attend this meeting. The lecture was held at a motel with more than 100 people in attendance. After the lecture, 20 people joined Applewhite and Nettles, which prompted Walter Cronkite on CBS Evening News to say that a score of persons have disappeared. 
that score of persons were seeking spiritual enlightenment and had decided to join Applewhite and Nettles to wait for the spaceship, which never arrived. Applewhite and Nettles shrugged their shoulders and essentially said they must have miscalculated. Next, they traveled to Colorado, again to wait for a spaceship that never showed. You'd think that the two representatives of the Kingdom of Heaven would be provided with some kind of schedule. The group of students and their two teachers were known by several names over the years, Human Individual Metamorphosis, Total Overcomers Anonymous, and eventually Heaven's Gate. So a cult was born. Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Nettles had their followers. People joined, some left, some stayed. But everyone had to obey rules in order to one day transition. To really lay out their purpose, Applewhite and Nettles wrote a book which contained behavioral guidelines on how next-level members, their followers, were to behave. There were about 17 bullet points, like... Can you follow instructions without adding your own interpretations? Can you deliver instructions as you receive them, or do they change according to your programming? Are you physically clumsy? Do you put off tasks, procrastinate? There is also a check partner system to ensure that no socializing or human-level relationships took place. Everyone was assigned a partner, someone they were least likely to be attracted to, and that partner would make sure you stayed on task. Former member Dick Jocelyn said it was run like the military. Thinking about or acting on sensuality was a no-no. Not sure how they'd monitor thoughts, maybe it was an honor system, but eventually they did come up with a drastic measure for keeping sexual desires at bay. We'll get to that. And back to how there was an explanation for everything. There was terminology to define what us regular humans called things. What we call a mind is actually a computer. Laundry room, that was a fiber lab. Bedroom, rest chambers. Sexual organs were plumbing, and underwear was your seat covers. You get the idea. The media back then was having a field day, referring to them as the UFO cult. By April 1976, Applewhite and Nettles were going by tea and dough, names that came from the relationship of the scale of seven tones from the musical The Sound of Music. They held public meetings to continue bringing their crew together, which is what they'd been instructed to do. By now, they had about 40-something members. All of their classroom sessions were recorded, as they taught that everything them and their members were doing were tasks in order to get to the next level, and therefore, they needed to live that way. They were all striving to be perfect. In 1977, the members were camping out or staying in motels in different states. They'd earn some cash doing odd jobs, or they'd request assistance from local churches. And they were always on the move, mostly to avoid family members, loved ones who may protest or interfere in some way. Applewhite and Nettles believed that their whereabouts were always being tracked. So let's talk about those family members. Imagine it one day your mom or your son or your brother goes to a motel to listen to a lecture somehow connected to UFOs or religion. The next day, they've disappeared, off to join a cult, looking to board a spaceship. Some of the members left behind their own children. One couple left their young daughter to be raised by her grandparents. And in almost all cases, the cult members didn't stay in contact with their families, the people from the regular human world, the ones that Applewhite and Nettles had referred to as Luciferians. 
And if they did contact them, it was by phone in a brief call with one of the leaders listening in. Of course, family members were trying to intervene. They were concerned their loved ones was being brainwashed or manipulated. But were they being brainwashed? What compels a seemingly normal person with a job, a family, to up and leave their day-to-day and join a cult? And why are we so fascinated by this behavior? One sociologist described in the HBO documentary about this case that the members of Heaven's Gate had similar personality traits, agreeable, gullible, vulnerable, with low self-esteem, and that they found a family in tea and dough. And once you've spent enough time within that family, it's harder and harder to leave. Generally, people who join cults may be experiencing a rough patch, something distressing from their personal or professional life. They may be lonely, looking for a sense of community. They may be looking for answers, usually to those important questions regarding success, happiness, and how to gain it. And according to Dr. Yanya Lalich, a specialist on the subject of cults and extremism, a cult leader doesn't encourage their members to live better lives. They seek to control them from personal and family relationships to financial assets, and living arrangements. So a member, well, they have to be highly committed. And it seems that if you're that committed, then you're no longer seeking success, not in the traditional way. You aren't seeking career growth. There's been tons of writing on the psychology behind cults. I suspect the reason we're so fascinated by it is that, first of all, we're people, humans, and lovers of mysteries. We want to understand what we don't understand. We want to understand why someone that seems just like us takes a drastic turn. The cults, they see us as the outsiders. We're the ones that are following along with social norms and becoming sheep. And Heaven's Gate saw us as fallen angels who are trying to keep the cult members from doing what they're supposed to do. This is what cult leaders do. They create methods to keep their followers obedient. They eliminate distractions, like those pesky family members or people who try to inject reasoning into their cult. Anything that could tempt the followers to leave. So if your mom is trying to talk sense into you, well, she's just a fallen angel. We have to get you away from her. And in order to get the reward that you're hearing about, you have to obey. If you're being told the earth is being recycled and that God is an alien— that you need to obey in order to transition or you'll be left behind, well, that promise can be compelling once you've committed yourself to the cause. There's a sentence right here on the Heaven's Gate website which reads, If you have grown to hate your life in this world and would lose it for the sake of the next level, you will find true life with us, potentially forever. If you cling to this life, will you not lose it? John G. Clark Jr., professor of psychiatry at Harvard, stated, quote, Many cult groups have developed basically similar and quite compelling conversion techniques for exploiting the vulnerabilities of potential converts. Makes sense. But it's also been said that Heaven's Gate wasn't like the cults that we usually hear about, Charles Manson or Jim Jones, who controlled their followers with threats of violence. Members of Heaven's Gate have said this wasn't the case here. Applewhite and Nettles didn't threaten. There wasn't even an authority structure. It wasn't wasn't Nettles and Applewhite at the top commanding out orders. It was more like a team. A team that came together and decided, as a team, what they needed to do. 
And that's what cult leaders strive for, that the natural tendency humans have to mimic social norms will work in a controlled environment as well. And even if Applewhite and Nettles weren't making threats, there was clearly a power of persuasion there. Think back to those guidelines that they wrote about. They question whether you think. Do you follow instructions without adding your own interpretation? They don't want critical thinkers. They don't want anyone bringing rationale to the table. It's also been said that with many cults, the leaders don't really believe what they're preaching. Someone like Manson, who said what he needed to say to get something done. But with Bonnie Nettles, and especially Marshall Applewhite in the later years, they really seemed to believe what they were saying. There are thousands of cults in operation at any time in the U.S., according to sociologists, but most of them aren't destructive and don't make headlines. They're not even all religious. Some are based in politics or self-improvement. By the late 70s, Heaven's Gate had reached a level where they were completely stripped of any individuality. Any speck of who they were, who they used to be, was gone. They stopped picking out their own clothes. Instead, they wore uniforms, drab clothing, and their hair was all cut into a very short, gender-neutral style. No facial hair was allowed. This was all part of the preparations, the readiness for the next level. Their names were even changed. The new names were all six letters and created by using a single syllable from their first name, followed by a last name, which was Odie. So, for example, Rob would become Rob Odie. Not all members were enamored with these rules. Some left and never looked back, and that was okay. Nobody was ridiculed or threatened for leaving. You were free to go at any time. But then things got drastic. Several members decided that in order to quell their sexual desires and devote themselves to their transition, they had to remove the ability to desire, and that meant castration. Allegedly, it was Sorodi that was the first one to have the procedure done in what's been described by members themselves as a sterile environment in a Colorado warehouse performed by a fellow member. But it didn't go well, and Sorodi had to be hospitalized. He later recovered. Still, other members followed and reportedly were happy to do so. Those procedures took place in Mexico, where they went in order to hide from authorities who might stop the group from doing what their mission was. Was it that, or was Mexico the only place they could find where, inexplicably, a castration could be performed? And then something happened that truly scared the cult's family members, a huge, tragic news event in 1978. It was Jonestown, the event that is now referred to as Drinking the Kool-Aid. On November 18, 1978, in Guyana, at a camp inhabited by a religious group organized by Reverend Jim Jones, 900 people, about a third of them being children, died by drinking juice mixed with cyanide and sedatives, all at the direction of their cult leader, Jim Jones. A lot of the event was recorded and can only be described as a horrible mass murder. People were understandably worried sick for their loved ones who were off camping with Bonnie Nettles and Marshall Applewhite, their loved ones that suddenly stopped communicating and were now participants of an extreme ideology. They feared the worst, that Heaven's Gate would lead to a deadly result. 
So now let's discuss a point I brought up at the top of the episode, an event that occurred which gave Heaven's Gate a new direction. In 1985, Bonnie Nettles was diagnosed with liver cancer. She told the fellow cult members about it, but not her own family. She died on June 19, 1985. And Nettles' death rocked the cult. This was Marshall Applewhite's partner, and he was reportedly never the same after her death. He grieved and truly missed her. Everything they had been teaching for the past decade now didn't really make sense, as if it did in the first place. Marshall Applewhite believed Nettles was his Heavenly Father. So how could the Heavenly Father die in their vehicle? How could this be explained? The members of Heaven's Gate had been planning to graduate to the next level with Nettles. So this really shattered them. They'd always been told that you leave the Earth in your bodies, your vehicles. After the initial mourning process was over, Applewhite altered the Heaven's Gate beliefs. He explained to his students that Nettles had too much energy to remain here on Earth. And he said that when he met her, she had told him there was a possibility she'd have to go back to the next level at some point unexpectedly. On the other hand, Applewhite also said that it had never occurred to him that one of them might depart early. So which was it? By Applewhite's and Nettles' own definitions, if the body was just a vehicle— then wouldn't Nettles' spirit just find a new vehicle to occupy? If your Hyundai Elantra breaks down or sputters on the side of the road and dies, you don't stop driving forever you get a new car. The change in the beliefs of Heaven's Gate were now this. Instead of leaving the earth in your vehicle, you engage in a spiritual transformation and leave the vehicle behind. You would have to die in order to leave your vehicle. By the 90s, it was reported that Marshall Applewhite began exerting more control over his members, and he said that Nettles was still guiding him in his pursuit as the Heavenly Father. And now the group became more and more reclusive. They needed food and shelter, though, so they made money by designing web pages, all the while fighting off the Luciferians, the friends and family members that may tempt them to leave Heaven's Gate. Applewhite determined that in order for the members to be birthed into the next level and to test their loyalty, they'd have to participate in a ceremony in which they would marry Applewhite. If you look at the videos of the members in the mid-90s, you'll notice they're all wearing wedding bands, and that's why. At one point, Marshall Applewhite permitted the members to visit with their families, something they hadn't done in years. Moms were reunited with their children. Applewhite even gave permission for the members to hug their family. After the visit was over, however, the members returned back to Applewhite and back to Heaven's Gate, all except for one who left the group permanently. In October 1996, the group moved into its final home, a mansion in Rancho Santa Fe, California, which they kept very clean and simple, like a monastery. And if they were to leave the home to run an errand, they had to sign out. The members' ages ranged from mid-20s to early 70s, and they mostly kept to themselves despite having neighbors around them. They kept track of all money earned or spent, even if they found a few pennies on the ground. It was recorded in a ledger. There was a list of movies, TV shows that they were allowed to watch, like Star Trek, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, or Cocoon. And then finally, the signal came. The one they'd all been waiting for, the signal to say, now is the time to board the UFO to the next level. 
The signal was the approach of a comet. Alan Hale, an astronomer, and Thomas Bopp had discovered a new comet on July 23, 1995. It was outside of Jupiter's orbit and was the farthest comet ever discovered by amateurs. Alan Hale was in New Mexico observing two other comets when he saw a fuzzy object and started tracking it. He then informed the IAU Central Bureau that he was pretty certain he'd found a new comet. The same night, Tom Bopp was in Arizona with a group of friends observing clusters in Sagittarius and discovered a faint cluster that he determined to be a comet. He sent a telegram to the Bureau. Comet Hale Bopp is hurtling through the inner solar system, a flying mountain of ice 40 miles across. As it approaches the sun, it should get brighter and brighter. But what does this have to do with Heaven's Gate? Here's how it ties into the mass suicide. What was special about this comet was that when observed during its passing near Earth, a third tail was discovered. Comets are known to have a gas and dust tail, but Hale-Bopp had a sodium tail as well. After an amateur astronomer saw that there was something trailing the comet, he took a photo and started making appearances on radio shows. Enter Courtney Brown, a professor at Emory University and self-proclaimed psychic who is known to engage in remote viewing. According to the website, the Farsight Institute, remote viewing is described as a controlled and trainable mental process involving psychic ability. It's used to transfer perceptual information across time and space. Now, while engaging in remote viewing, Courtney Brown determined the data suggested a large object, possibly complex, artificial, and technological in nature, was trailing the comet, though he didn't claim this as a fact. And a member of Heaven's Gate heard about it. They took the info back to the group, who saw it as their signal. The UFO was approaching, trailing behind the Hale-Bopp comet. They were to board it when the comet was at its closest distance to the Earth. While it's been speculated that this information or misinformation was what influenced the members of Heaven's Gate, here is an excerpt directly from the cult's website. Whether Hale-Bopp has a companion or not, is irrelevant from our perspective. However, its arrival is joyously very significant to us at Heaven's Gate. The joy is that our older member in the evolutionary level above human, the kingdom of heaven, has made it clear to us that Hale-Bopp's approach is the marker we've been waiting for. The time for the arrival of the spacecraft from the level above human to take us home to their world. In the literal heavens. Our 22 years of classroom here on planet Earth is finally coming to conclusion. Graduation from the human evolutionary level. We are happily prepared to leave this world and go with T's crew. That same year, Applewhite made a video saying, This planet is about to be recycled, refurbished, started over. That doesn't mean it's going to be destroyed. It doesn't mean it's the end of the world. But it does mean that it is going to be spaded under. Now you can say, well, who are you to say that? And I'll tell you who I am. As to whether or not you believe who I am is up to you and whether or not you believe that this civilization is going to be recycled or refurbished is up to you. 
Now the purpose of this tape is to warn you that this is about to happen and that it's going to happen very soon. Next time on Method and Madness, the members of Heaven's Gate prepare for the arrival of the UFO, trailing the hale Bob comet. Who stayed behind? And who were the remaining 38 members that were led by Marshall Applewhite, who would declare that he was Jesus himself? What preparations did they make for the exit from this level? We'll talk about the final video they made, how they said goodbye, and what steps they ultimately took to die as a group by suicide. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so the best way you can support it is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It's edited by Mo and Spo. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.